Blog Talk Radio. there should be some kind of sports going on, an NBA game, an NFL game even better, baseball I can even handle, golf, hard to stomach, but I can handle it, NHL might be good, but no, we have no sports now because of this virus, but I'm here to see if I can entertain you a little bit after that national anthem, give you something to get excited about, hope we'll have a good show here today, today we have a good friend of mine, Dan Dorsky, coming on the show. He is the man who puts away the bad guys. He puts away those mob guys we see about in the movies, on TV, and all that stuff. He does the dirty work. He does the work that somebody's got to do. It's a dangerous job, but somebody's got to do it. And before we get over to Dan, I want to talk a little bit about this. Me and Dan uh, getting some big discussions, uh, to put it lightly, debates about a lot of issues. Um... I have this saying that I like to say that uh, on one side is good, on the other side is evil, and somewhere in between lies humanity. I truly believe there's nobody completely evil and nobody completely an angel. It's just that in-between measures. You know, I don't think Donald Trump is evil. I don't think KKK followers are evil i think they're on the spectrum somewhere then again i don't think people are completely good either i think we all have our shortcomings in that way but today we're going to talk about somebody some people on the other end of that spectrum now towards that bad apple category i'd say i don't know where exactly to place them maybe dan can help me place them somewhere on this spectrum where they might be But again, like I said, I don't think everybody's all good or anybody's all bad, but we're going to talk more about that. So see if we can get Dan Dorsky to call on us and talk about that. He's going to share his stories. He shared some of those with me. 
stuff you hear like on Sopranos and stuff. I'm guessing. I don't know. I'm really excited to hear more about that. I hope you'll call in here any minute. We can discuss that. I'm wondering what y'all think. Maybe we'll get y'all to, to chime in on what you think about it. This is an issue that I talk about a lot with my friends, some of them. I think Dan is more on the idea of, um, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to assume for Dan, but I've had some conversations that make me think that he is in a certain mindset of more um, more black and white than I am. I, I probably try to give people more leave, leeway than most. I, I see goodness in just about anybody. So anyway, before the further ado, let's get Dan on line. Let's see if I can get him going here. I'm, I'm Billy. It's Dan. Dan, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, man. Good to have you on the show, man. Glad to be here. So me and Dan go go. I don't know how how many years back we go, Dan. A long 20? way. Uh, at least 20 years, yeah, back when I was living uh, in California. I, I think, I think the, was it Port, Port of Vallarta, our first trip where we met? No, we met we met through our mutual friend way before that. Port, Port of Vallarta was, was that a, but that after was I moved back together, to New York. Right? We, I that, mean, was, we, that was our first time intensely together. That's right, yeah. Together. But we hung out before that in California. Yeah. So me and Dan have become closer and closer friends since I moved here to the East Coast, um, I think because we're a closer time zone. He's one of my close friends, probably the closest friend I have to me right now in many ways. And we get, like I said in the intro, we get in a lot of discussions. Me and Dan definitely have our debates, right, man? We are constantly debating. That is part of the joy of our relationship, or as I like to think of it, I'm constantly helping you see the light. Uh, I'm sure you would like to see that. I'm well in the light, man. I got light all around me. I know. I'm bored you I, I would have to say, I, I don't think our wives think there's any kind of light going on there. No, I don't think our wives are as entertained by our, our relationship as we are. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not a big fan of that. Um, yeah. So Dan's on here today. He's going to talk about his experience. Uh, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm kind of generic on this, putting mobsters away and, and building a case and all the interesting people he's met through that and his experiences in that. And uh, and I said in the beginning, did you hear what I said in the beginning, Dan? Yeah, yeah, I was listening. So, so just a couple of comments from what you said at the beginning. So this is all past tense. I don't do that anymore. Um, yep. My heyday. Yeah, yep. Yeah, my heyday with the mob was roughly 1997 to around 2003 or mm -hmm. so, where I constantly was on trial against uh, the mob. I think I tried more cases than anybody else ever has in history. I won them all, uh, some of the some of the biggest cases in the country. Wow. Um, and uh, and then on on on. In terms of our debates, like you were saying, um, uh, in terms of uh, evil, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why I was so passionate about what I did is they are as close to the evil side of the spectrum as, as you can get. Um, I, in fact, uh, under Omerta, which people probably are familiar with from the movies, which is a secret oath that you take in order to become a, a made member of organized crime, you, they actually take an oath, a sworn oath, to declare war on the rest of us in law-abiding society. 
Um, so uh, I, I took great pleasure in, in my work. I, I viewed it as, as fighting for my country. And What's the oath like? I mean, does it... Uh, well, well, I'll, I'll tell you about the oath, but just to kind of round out that thought, the way that I viewed it was they were bad people who were hurting good okay. people, and my job was to protect the good people by hurting the bad people. Mm-hmm. Um, the oath that they take is is, is um, a secret oath in, in, in a room where you have a leadership figure, sometimes the boss of the family. They, they have a very uh, hierarchical structure, so you have a boss, an underboss, uh, a consigliere who's kind of like an advisor, and then you have captains or capos or skippers. They run crews. Beneath them, you have soldiers who are made guys. They do the ceremony that we're about to talk uh, about. And then, and then there are associates beneath them who um, uh, are not formally inducted. Uh, they, don't, they don't go through this, uh, this ceremony. And the real strength of the mafia is in New York City, where I was based. And there are, four, there are five gangs or, or, or mafia families. There's the Genovese, the Gambino. For those of you who know John Gotti, he ran the Gambino family for a while. Vincent the Chin Gigante, he was the guy in the bathrobe. He ran the Genovese family. And then you have the uh, Colombo, Lucchese, and Bonanno. So those five crime families uh, together uh, ran and run organized crime in New York City. And, and the leadership of them uh, formed what's called the Commission, which is a ruling commission that arbitrates disputes between the families. Um, so the was that ceremony, Al Capone like Gambino? No, Capone was in Chicago, uh, okay. so uh, he was in, I think they called that the outfit. I, I don't know how it okay. back then okay. or where the power base was. Um, but in, in, in uh, a ceremony, what happens is the leader, who would be a captain or an underboss, consigliere boss, would be there with the associate who is told that we want to bring you to a meeting. They're not told what the purpose of the meeting is. They show up, and they're powerful members of their crime family there with them. They seat them around the table. And the basic gist of it is um, their, their finger is pricked, blood is drawn. Um, uh, sometimes they'll put the blood on a napkin and burn the napkin and, uh, and they're given a, a knife or a gun and they're told this is what you live and die with when you're with us. When you're with us, uh, you can never leave. The only way out is through death. Um, and you are now a member of a secret society. The purpose of that society is uh, to protect uh, one another, and we do that, as you know. I mean, I, this next part I don't think they say, but as they know, it's a gang of criminals who are there to prey on the rest mm-hmm. of us. Uh, and they're told, and uh, this is one of the more interesting parts of the ceremony, they're told, uh, if I call you and you're uh, typically, uh, they're told if, you're, if your wife and or children are on their deathbed, um, you must come to me. Uh, and uh, if you don't, we'll kill you. Uh, so it's made very clear to them that their one and only loyalty, even over that of their family members, their blood family members, is to the gang. And that if they don't obey that loyalty, uh, they'll be killed. Uh, and they're wow. told, of course, not to disclose the existence of any of this um, uh, to society or to anybody else. And you get introduced. One of the ways how they maintain the secrecy is if uh, if they want to introduce uh, a gang member to another without saying, hi, I'm in the Gambino family, for instance, this guy's in the Gambino family, uh, they, they have verbal techniques. So you would introduce somebody as a friend of ours. If you say this is a friend of ours, that means he's in the same crime family as us. 
So if somebody's mm-hmm. overhearing it, they would have no idea what you're saying. And if you say he's a friend of mine, that means he's with our gang, but he's not gone through this ceremony. Oh, I gotcha. I gotcha. And then, so how do they get those, you know, those names? You know, they always come up with these fancy mafias. Yeah, so when you're a a committed criminal, um, your anonymity is best preserved uh, in many ways, one of which is your last name isn't used. So pretty much everybody's got a nickname, and it can be because you ran a bagel store, so you could be Louis Bagels. It could be because you have (laughs) red hair, so you're Johnny Red. Um, it could be um, uh, because you're heavy, so you're, uh, you're like uh, Fat Pete. Um, uh, one famous uh, guy was uh, Vinny the Chin. He ran the Genovese family, which is the most powerful family, and I, I prosecuted him twice. Um, so I was very familiar with uh, with the Chin, and with him, you uh, he was. Where's so, he now? Oh, he died uh, in jail he died. Uh, okay. around 15 years ago. Um, after we convicted him the second time, but uh, how old, he was, how so old was he around when you convicted him? Oh, in his seventies, he had a crazy act uh, where he um, walked around the streets of New York in a bathrobe and had psychiatrists uh, swear that he was uh, an imbecile, and uh, he was able to avoid prosecution for for decades um, wow. uh, through this crazy act. But we were able to put a case together uh, to show that it was all an act. In fact, the second time I prosecuted him, he uh, swore under oath that the whole thing was an act, uh, and I convicted him of obstructing justice by faking being crazy. Um, Uh. But with him, you weren't allowed to say his name. Instead, uh, his nickname was The Chin, and you weren't even allowed to say The Chin. You had to point to your chin if you were referring to him. Uh, So uh, nobody was ever permitted to even reference him on penalty of death. Well, and I, I think you told me this before, but doing what you do is not where the money is. The money's in when you're defending these guys, right? Yeah, so I would make I don't know ten percent of what the criminal defense lawyers would make, uh, who were who were there. <laughs> money, to, money, money. Um, yeah, they were there for the money. They were there, uh, at least as I saw it. Uh, they were there to. Um, from the perspective that I had and have, they were there to make sure the criminals could keep on uh, committing crimes and hurting people. And uh, that's where the money is. So if you're interested in money, you become uh, a lawyer who represents people like that. I refused to do that because I was really proud of my contributions to society and to my country. And uh, I I just wasn't willing to do that. So when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, I went um, in-house to work for a variety of companies to try to make sure that they did not engage in criminal uh, behavior. This was after uh, Enron, WorldCom, uh, and other companies were brought down by criminal behavior within their organizations. So new leadership often looked for people like me with backgrounds like me to try to make sure that they had cultures that were not corrupt. Mm, Okay. So this question ran across my mind. Like I'm thinking like all these people – that you put away, they seen you, right? They seen you oh, in yeah. court. They didn't like me at all. Yeah. And they don't like you. Um, uh, is it a way to protect yourself, or are you just like on pins and needles when you go around in New York at that time? Uh, so I was single, which helped a lot. Uh, what we were told was that as long as you made it clear to them that you were simply doing your job, they would 
leave you alone, although hits were from time to time put out on prosecutors very, very rarely. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one of the guys I used to work with, um, there was uh, a belief uh, based on a statement that a high-ranking member of the Bonanno family made. Uh, there was a belief that his life was, was in, at risk. Uh, so, um, yeah, I was, I was often uh, highly alert and aware of the potential risks. Um, but uh, somebody had to do that job, and I was very proud of doing that job, so I did it with vigor and passion. Um, do you, and do you think the thing that, be... oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. What I was going to say is the thing that really keeps you safe is they understand that if they do actually carry through on on what they would like to do, the response of necessity by the federal government uh, will be vicious uh, because you have to protect the lives of the FBI agents and other agents and the prosecutors and the judges who ensure that we can live in a civilized society with without crime uh, uh, making us into an anarchy. So, for instance, there was a DEA agent, Everett Hatcher, who was killed uh, by a mob figure in the late 1980s, and the law enforcement response was so appropriately brutal uh, uh, in response that the mafia found the guy who killed Hatcher. They killed him. Then they found the guy who he was hiding with. They killed him, left their bodies on the street, and said, okay, could you please leave us alone? We recognize that what we did, that what a member of our group did was intolerable, and we won't do it again. So it's not because they're good people. It's not because they respect us. It was because they understood that they can't make money as easily through criminal activity if they start going uh, after okay. us, because then it's, it's war. Do, do you think, like, you know, you have kids now, a wife. Do you think you would have had a different mindset if you didn't have all those responsibilities? Possibly. I mean, for one thing, I, I don't think I would have worked as hard as I did. I, I was constantly on trial. I, I mean, every year I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Organized Crime Unit. I was doing one or two trials a year, which was a lot more than almost all my colleagues. Um, but many of my colleagues had families. Uh, so I think I would have still done it. I did talk to one uh, co-prosecutor uh, back in the heyday that I was there who said to me that if a threat came in or she had any reason to think that her, her children's lives were at risk, she would uh, quit immediately. And I, I'd imagine I would have done the same if I had any reason to believe that. Hmm. Wow. Huh. Well, somebody is on hold. I'm guessing they got a question. You want to take a question? I'm not sure what they want. Because sure. the thing is about yep. this interface, I'm doing this all on my own. I ain't got no engineer behind me. So I have to have like 100 different jobs. Main thing is I'm trying to listen to you. So I rarely get over to my my keyboard to look to see who's calling, but somebody's calling. I think I know who it is, but I'm not sure. I think it's my friend Pamela, but I'm going to put her line on and see what she has to say, if you don't mind. Yeah, that'd be fun. Hug it out, America Radio. Who's this? Hey, Billy, it is Pamela, but I turned in really late, so I don't have a question, and I'm um, going to have to walk over to the hospital in a minute. With the, I'll still listen, but um, I um, I haven't followed along enough to have a good question. Okay. Well, we'll okay. You can check it again later. It'll be on uh, download later. You can listen to uh, Dan saying a lot of interesting stuff. So. Okay. You, you can hear I'm what ready. he has to say later. I will. Thank you. Yep. See you later. Bye. Okay. All right. So that wasn't what I thought it was, but. Yeah. Um, 
she's actually a really good friend of mine. I met out here. I think I told you about it, man. I had her on the show the other day. Man, she's a fiery grandma. Golden heart, but man, don't she don't take shit from nobody. From nine to ninety, she don't take shit from nobody. I think you might like her. So so another question I have before we get into some of the stories is is this something you always wanted to do? I mean, did you like grow up wanting to put away the bad guys? Yeah, I mean, I grew up uh, reading comic books. I mean, you know, I used to read Superman, Batman, Rawhide Kid, and uh, forget the other ones. But I, I always loved the idea of fighting bad guys and being a good guy. And I went into law because uh, naively I wanted to kind of change the world and make the world a better place. And it was just a matter of how to do it. Um, I remember my dad telling me stories about an uncle who had a pizza place in New York and how some mobsters brought him into the basement and put a gun to his head and took his uh, store lease away from him. And that, I'm sure, played some uh, role, played role in, in, yeah. in making me uh, you know, interested in this. But the more specific thing is when I was in law school, Rudy Giuliani was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York in, in Manhattan, and, and he was just making waves with uh, big, big cases against the mafia. There was a famous case called the Commission case in the late 80s, and that was his office's doing, and he was arresting um, Wall Street, corrupt Wall Street guys, and it was just it, – it was so fascinating. And he came to speak at my law school, NYU, um, when I was a second or third year, and he just talked about – what it's like to be a federal prosecutor. And that just became my dream at that point. It's like, oh my God, you could chase bad guys like they do in the comic books and get paid for it. Um, <laughs> so that just became my dream. And then it was a matter of getting the job because it's a really hard job to get. Um, so it took me a long haul and a lot of luck and a lot of effort. And I was able to get the job and go to work. It's funny. I, I think I like being the bad guy. I remember when I was younger and I would go watch wrestling. I'd always go and pull for the bad guy or put on his makeup, <laughs> the one who's doing all the evil stuff. And they and I get everybody in the place to boo me and stuff. <laughs> and you're just the opposite. But somehow yeah. we're friends today, Dan, huh? There you go. That's probably why we argue so much. <laughs> yeah, that's probably why we do. So. Are there any particular, you know, stories? I bet you've been some times that have really stuck out in your mind of things that happened that, you know, remember that the audience, you know, might be really interested in hearing about. I mean, I had so many great cases. I What I could do is, like, I could briefly outline for you the case, and you can pick which one or ones you want me to talk about. Does, okay. Does, does, and if anybody wants to call so, in and ask which one they want to hear, fine, too. Yeah, so... Like my real, real heyday was '97 to '03. So in '97, I was part of the team that put uh, Vinny the Chin away, uh, which was a historic trial. I mean, it had it was front page news. It was a huge, huge event. Um, and then I re-prosecuted him a few years later uh, for, as I mentioned before, obstructing justice. So the '97 prosecution was for trying to kill John Gotti. Uh, and for um, extortion and all kinds of schemes. Um, then in 98, um, these are just the trials that I did. I had, I had others where they pled guilty, but these are the guys who went to trial. In 98, I prosecuted a guy, Robert uh, Spinelli, and his brother for trying to kill um, the sister of one of our uh, witnesses, Fat Pete Chodo. 
so they shot her in the head, um, but uh, the uh, silence are cracked, and she survived. So I prosecuted them. In 99, I prosecuted uh, the boss of the Colombo family, a guy named Andrew Russo, for trying to um, find a juror who um, uh, was a juror for the murder trial of his son. So I prosecuted him for attempting to obstruct justice by uh, contacting the juror. Uh, in 2000, wow. I uh, prosecuted a guy Sorry? It just goes on and on, man. Yeah, it goes it's on and on. Right? I, I can keep going or, or not. Sorry? <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, so in 2000, I uh, prosecuted a guy named Frank Giudice uh, and his crew. They would do home invasions. Um, in Queens uh, in 2001, Joe Watts, uh, he was a, a famous uh, Gambino guy who uh, helped uh, John Gotti kill Paul Castellano. I prosecuted him after um, – Castellano's death, um, uh, John Gotti rewarded Joe, uh, Joe Watts by giving him Staten Island to take over, uh, as crazy mm. as that sounds. And Joe Watts took the money that he made out of Staten Island, and he built a huge estate out on Florida. Um, uh, so we prosecuted him for tax evasion. By the way, when I say I prosecuted in, in each one of these cases, uh, except for one, the Russo case, and all the others, I was part of a, a team. Uh, and then in 2002, I doubled up. I did a couple trials uh, per year or so. I prosecuted a guy named uh, Santoro, Bobby Santoro. He was a, a money launderer for the mob, so he would help them clean their money. And then I prosecuted a guy named Jackie DeRoss. He was the uh, underboss of the uh, uh, Colombo family. I prosecuted him for extortions. And then finally in 03, prosecuted um, a guy named Huck Carbonaro, for trying to kill uh, Sammy Gravano. Uh, he's a pretty famous uh, Gambino guy um, who mm -hmm. testified against John Gotti and in revenge, the Gambino family tried to kill him. Uh, and then the other trial I did was in 2003, I prosecuted a bunch of guys uh, headed by uh, Carmine Polito for killing um, uh, another uh, person named Timo, Tino Lombardi at a poker game. And they also shot the, uh, Tino's cousin, um, uh, at that game, um, uh, Mike Durso, um, they tried to kill them both, but Durso survived and became a key cooperating witness for us and helped us take down a lot of cases later on. So I prosecuted the guys who tried to kill him um, and who did, who, who did kill his cousin. So those are the trials. That's like a high-level outline of all the trials. Um, is Gotti, is he, is he dead? Oh yeah, God, he died a long time ago in prison. When did he die? Um, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure about uh, that. Did no, 15, you ever meet him? Twenty years ago. No, no, no. I, I don't get to meet these guys. I, I sit, you know, at the opposite table from them. But uh, he was also he was prior to my time. Well, that's uh, God, what I mean. Was, I don't mean like yeah. sitting down and have a cup of coffee. I mean, did you in court with him or anything ever? Like no, that? no. He he was not one of those trials. Gotti was. Uh, Gotti was, I think, the early nineties. Uh, yeah, that okay. he was prosecuted. Yeah, and so the one you said, the nineteen ninety eight one was the one I, I sound like the most interesting to me. Spinelli, uh, so that one, um, so it was Robert and his brother um, uh, for for trying to kill uh, the the sister of a um, Lucchese family captain named Fat Picciotto. He weighed around 400 pounds, um, mm -hmm. and uh, the Lucchese family shot him um, 12, 13 times, and he absorbed all the bullets, one of the rare benefits of being severely overweight. Um, he was not killed by a 
fuselage of, of, of bullets. Um, wow. That in of itself has a very interesting story because there were insane people at the time who were running the Lucchese family, um, a guy named Gaspipe Casso and Vito uh, Amuso, Vic Amuso. Uh, were were just homicidal, sadistic murderers and paranoid, and they started killing off loyal members of their own family. So when they shot Fat Pete, he was not working for us. He was a he was a loyal criminal, but they suspected he might become a cooperating witness. So they tried to kill him, and he survived. And the FBI then began protecting Fat Pete around the clock, <laughs> hoping that he would become a witness for the government, but he refused. He said, get lost. I don't want your protection. Get lost. And the mafia tried to kill him. They sent in a guy, I think his name was Mike DeSantis, dressed up as a nurse to kill Chodo, even when he was on his deathbed. And that, that sounds just work. like a movie right there. It, this stuff, you can't make it up. I mean, the stuff that happens in real life, you cannot make it up. So uh, anyway, uh, Fat Pete survived and, uh, and was still loyal to the mob. But they started to threaten him even more because they couldn't reach him. So they started to send him messages and they said they'll, that they would kill his father and he still didn't cooperate. And then they sent a team of assassins to kill his sister, uh, Patricia Capazola. And they shot her in the head, as I mentioned before, and the silencer cracked and she survived. And at that point, fat Pete had like a revelation. It's like, why am I loyal to these mobsters? They, they, they tried to kill me. They're threatening my dad. They're trying to kill my sister. Mm-hmm. That's how deeply loyal these people are in a bizarre world way to yeah. their criminal gang. And he decided, what what that what am I doing? Screw it. So he became a witness for us and started to testify for us and brought down very, very high level guys. Um and by the way, he's not the only one who they drove. So while trying to prevent him from cooperating, ironically, they created a cooperator. You know, the saying you you, you create what you fear. So they feared that he'd become a witness, and they turned him into a witness, and he was a great witness for us. Anyway, I then prosecuted the guys who tried to kill his sister, and that was that trial. So uh, one of the guys who participated, actually the guy who pulled the trigger, his name was Dino Basciano. Uh, it's amazing how it all comes back to me. I mean, this is you know so long ago, but all these uh, events are, are still very fresh um, in my brain. Uh, so uh Dino was caught on something else and became a cooperating witness for us. So he testified against Spinelli and his brother. They were driving the crash car. Um, and uh, it was a fascinating trial um, uh, for for all the reasons that I've already expressed and um, some some other reasons as well. It was just really neat for the jury to get a sense of how vicious and rotten organized crime is to its core. That you know they would stoop to that low a point. Even for the mafia, that was a low point. When you when you try to kill an uninvolved woman, um, that that's not something that they resort to very often, and it resulted in convictions. And interestingly, a footnote to that is I read recently because uh, I don't do this kind of work anymore, but it was Robert Spinelli and his brother, and I'm blanking on his brother's name. I think it may have been John. No, it's not, but in any event, his brother later became a cooperating witness and is now a witness uh, for the government against other mobsters. So they, like, reduce their, their – how does it work when they're becoming a witness for, for you? Yeah, so the way it works is they are – 
taught through what they call the life, which is organized crime. They are taught never trust the government. Don't trust a prosecutor. Don't trust an FBI agent. Don't trust anybody because they're going to screw you, which is, of course, completely wrong. But that's all they know because they're criminals and they only mm-hmm. talk to other criminals. So they're very, very suspicious of us. One of the reasons why it's so hard to get a cooperating witness is they'll get what, what's called house counsel. So a lot of the mob lawyers work for the organized crime group as an entity, and they won't bring somebody in to talk to you in the first place because they're not representing the interests of that person. They're representing the interest of the, of the gang itself. So the first okay. thing is you have to get them a lawyer who will actually represent their interests. And I, and I don't know the intricacies of what happened with Pete because I wasn't around for that, but typically uh, a mobster who is in that kind of situation will realize that they have to get their own lawyer who they can trust as compared to a mob lawyer who they can't. So they'll get a lawyer typically, and the lawyer will reach out and say, this guy would like to meet with you. And then a very, very highly secretive meeting is arranged because if the mobsters know that they're meeting with you, the mobsters will kill the guy. So, yeah, there are all kinds of, 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 of tricks of the trade to uh, uh, finagle a meeting between a prosecutor, an FBI agent, and a gangster. And then what you do is you just try to read each other. And as the prosecutor, you try to show them that this is something that's repeatable. And and many other criminals have have done this. And we honor their effort and their attempt. And basically what you communicate is if this doesn't happen, if, if you decide not to work with us, you'll go back to your life and no one will ever know. You know, nothing's going to happen to you. So you can meet with us. Uh, safely and securely. But if you do decide to work with us, what we'll do is we'll keep you safe. Um, We'll get your family safe. They'll go into the witness uh, security Mm -hmm. program uh, where they're given new identities um, as happened, you know, to Fat Pete and his sister and and any other organized crime figure who works with us. And they're given new lives and new stories. Um, And Fat Pete had a funny story about that, which I'll circle back to uh, later. But, but, you over time you develop a trust with them that's the key is you develop a trust and they learn that you're a human being and a regular guy and you learn Mm -hmm. that they say things that you can trust because we have a lot of information they don't know we have and we are constantly testing what they're telling us to get a read on them whether they're actually serious about this or not and ultimately if they decide to move forward what you do is um you bring them to a secret closed proceeding a sealed courtroom in front of a judge, uh, typically, uh, where they plead guilty to the worst crimes that they have told you about, because they have to tell you about their full criminal history. And the deal is, if they lie to you at any point, if we catch them in a lie, we rip up the agreement, and they essentially die in jail. Uh, But if they tell us the truth um, and, uh, and do what we need them to do, which is testify at trial and give us information. We will ask the judge, the judge is the one who senses. we can't do the sentence, but the judge will decide, uh, what is an appropriate sentence for them at the end of the day. And the judges know that this is how the criminal justice system works. We can't solve crimes, uh, unless criminals tell us what's happening for the most part because rabbis and priests and uh, PTA parents don't happen to know what the mafia is doing. Uh, so the only people who do are the mobsters, and the judges have to reward them uh, in, in, in order for us to encourage them to come forward. So that's how it all works. 
Um, did that always and, happen? Uh, did it ever backfire you when the judge didn't didn't do? Not in my did? experience. Yeah. The judges get it. I mean, if the judges hammer these people, nobody's going to become a witness for us, and yeah. our cases will dry up and crime will thrive. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, Fat Pete had a funny story uh, for me along these lines. So he was—he's dead. Unfortunately, he passed away. I don't know, five, ten years ago. But in any event, when I was oh, prepping was he? him. He was, I don't know, probably in his 50s, 60s. Uh, he had a lot of health issues because of his, his weight and, and the injuries from the bullets. Um, yeah, a couple things there. <laughs> yeah, but um, he, he had a funny, he had a great sense of humor. And uh, when I was prepping him for Charles, you know, you spend days together, so you, you make a lot of small talk. And uh, he was in a location, you, they're, 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 they're safe sites. So it'll be a place like, I'm not saying this is where he was, but it would be a place like Montana or uh, South Dakota, or um, Idaho, or uh, I don't know, Kentucky, just a place where the mafia doesn't have a presence. That's where they're relocated to. And he's this big guy from Brooklyn who, you know, kind of talks like this with a gruff voice, and his, and his body has bullet holes all over him. <clears throat> so he, he told me that uh, it, it, that it was not terribly infrequent. Where Swiss cheese, he, Pete. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, it, it wasn't... Terribly. I mean, it, it happened, he told me from time to time, that he'd be at like a social gathering and somebody would look at him and say, wait a second, you got all these bullet holes in you. You're talking with a Brooklyn accent. You're not from around here. I'll bet you're in the witness protection program. So guess how – how do you diffuse that situation, Billy? I'll ask you. You're, you are a mobster. you got bullet holes in your, in your body. Uh, you know, you, you, you talk like a guy from that life and somebody says, hey uh, – uh, I'll bet Billy. I'll bet you were in organized crime. How do, how do you? And you're in the witness protection program. How do you? How do you change that? <laughs> no idea, man. Yeah, it's a tough one. But these guys, they survive with their street smarts and their street wits. So what he told me he would do is burst into laughter and go, "That's right, exactly. I'm like from one of those TV shows. I'm in the witness uh, protection boy, program. Yeah. I'm a mobster." And, he's, and you know, get the whole room laughing. And uh, I know somebody else who's breath. done that before. Yeah, well, that might be... Now I know uh, where you got that tactic from, Dan. (laughs) Yep, I learned from the best. You learn it from all the criminals you prosecuted. I don't think I want to see the other uh, tactics you've learned yet. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I used to have such fascinating conversations with him and the others. I remember once he was describing for me um, this guy who... uh, who he knew, obviously, from the street, and he was saying, Dan, you wouldn't believe it. This guy, he was like a handyman. You needed you need a, uh, a car stall, and he'd steal the car. You needed somebody shaken down, he'd shake him down. You needed somebody beaten up a little bit, he'd beat him up for you. He was a good guy. And I stopped, and I go, Pete, hold on a second. You're not part of that world anymore. What do you mean he was a good guy? He was a bad guy. That's, that's how you define bad guys. And he bursts a laugh. He goes, yeah, 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 Dad, of course, you're right. He was a bad guy. But you know what I mean. Like, I, you know, back then he was a good guy. And, of course, I think he's a bad guy now. So, well, I think that goes back to the thing I was talking about. There are probably some good things about that guy that he remembers when he says that. Well, when, all when the you're things kind of more fixated on the parts that are bad. Right? Yeah, I mean, everything he was giving an example of was something the rest of us would condemn. Like, you know, he'd steal your car or he'd beat you up or he'd threaten you uh, for criminals. Those are, according to no, civilized – No, I get that, yeah. but don't you think he has a relationship? Because I know people oh, yeah. in my life that people think are complete assholes. 
And I know they're not because I know deeper than some of the really good things they've done, right? So maybe there are some things. I, I, that's just maybe, what I'm thinking. Maybe thinking yeah. about some good things about that person. You'd have to dig pretty deep, but yeah, maybe. <laughs> that's what I do, Dan. <laughs> yeah. I'm always looking for the good in something. Yeah. Except I'm always looking for trouble with my kids. I'm always got that idea. Uh, What's your angle? What's your angle? <laughs> well, you know kids well. <laughs> well, that's that's interesting, interesting stuff. And you told me some story a while back of somebody you met up with again recently, right? Oh yeah, that I that I should only talk about in general terms, but there was a okay. uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, an ex mob guy. Like I I worked with a lot of cooperating witnesses. That's what Fat Pete was. He was a, a mobster who left the life, became a witness for us, and you de- you develop a relationship over time. It's a it's an odd relationship. It's kind of arm's length, but still you develop a relationship and. So one guy I worked with, and you're, you know, you're going back 15, 20 years now, we'd stay in touch a little bit through an FBI agent who we knew in common, and you develop some degree of affection for them. You know, they, they help you make cases. They, they do reform their lives to a large degree, uh, many mm-hmm. if not most. Um, uh, and, and I believed that this guy had. I, I believed that he had a revelation uh, just that, it forces you to have when you're dealing with law-abiding people and you start to look back on your old life and you see kind of how twisted it was. So I developed a bit of a relationship with him, and then he reached out to me not too long ago because he wanted some help with something. And my answer was, I don't help criminals, but I'll help you as long as it doesn't involve criminal activity. And um, so I ended up helping him uh, with it. And, uh, we ended up, uh, kind of like getting back in touch and it was really refreshing. It was great to, uh, to spend some time together after all these years had passed. And you, you were talking about how, like you, I think how you said you were nervous about the spot you were going to or something. Yeah. I, uh, I don't want to meet anybody anywhere, particularly somebody like that in a place that brings risk. So uh, I was very cautious about uh, where we met under circumstances. Do you think you're more cautious about it now? Now, meaning? Now, because now you know you have the responsibilities, you're older, like... Like the things I used to do when I was younger, I won't do today. I wonder if that has any of your age. No, no. Yeah, not, not for me. I mean, when I was an organized crime prosecutor, you know, I was well into my 30s and even early 40s. I mean, I, I okay. was the same mindset as I am now. Yeah, I forgot you're old, man. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, not like you, spring chicken. No, not um, spring chicken. <laughs> but, um, you're like a dead uh, rooster. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but uh, for me to do that kind of work, I had to be, you know, very, very uh, aware, not running around blind like you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here we go. Now this is the way me and Dan used to go. We're keeping yeah. it really nice yeah, and calm. Take the clothes off and a little slowly bit. we're getting it back to how me and him yeah. talk. We were. It, I mean, it, it is a PG thirteen show. I think Pamela Despite is on the line. Despite some curse words uh, I, at the I, beginning, I, it's going to be hard for my kids to hear this now. Well. Let me, I think we got a couple people on the line. Let me let me try right. somebody here. See who this is. I have no idea. Let's check it out. 
Plug it out, America Radio. How can I help you? Hi, Hello? this is uh, Dan's cousin, Al, from California. Oh, my goodness, Albert. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Dan, we're listening, and you're talking about you know, good and evil guys. You had an experience in California uh, where you uh, you had to deal with some what I what you described as really really bad guys. You might I don't know if you want to relate that, but I thought that might be interesting to the audience. Oh yeah, thanks, Howard. That that's funny uh, that you bring that up. Yeah, so um, I loved prosecuting organized crime, but I also love the outdoors, and I have lots of lovely, loving, fantastic relatives out in California. So in '99, this is how we met, Billy. In 99, I uh, transferred out to the Northern District of California, and, and my wonderful cousin, uh, Albert, who uh, just called in, I actually stayed with him and, and his uh, lovely wife, Susan, uh, for a while, uh, trying to you kind did. of get settled. <laughs> yep. And, uh, and I prosecuted there. Uh, boy, it was the Mexican gangs that used to model themselves after uh, Italian organized crime, but they did a very poor job of it, but they were really, really vicious uh, people. So um, did that uh, for a while, and it was funny. There was an FBI agent there, I forget his name, who you who literally locked himself in my office once. Hey, Al. Because. Hey, Al. Yeah? If you pause your your play button, I can hear it in the background. It makes it oh, hard to let hear. Oh, let me mute it. Yeah, that'd be good. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I moved to and the no, other room. No, no problem. Okay. So I um he would lock he locked himself in my office more than once, and he was absolutely convinced that I was in California because I was hiding from a, a mob contract, uh, a, a murder contract, and I would just assure him, no, I actually want to be out here. Because I love the outdoors, I, I love the lifestyle in California, and, I, and I'd like to be a prosecutor out here. Um, uh, so I, we had some really funny conversations where he would say to me, no, you can trust me, Dan. Like, tell me what's really going on. <laughs> it is what I say it is. There's nothing hidden here. I just love no, California. You can't, trust, you can't trust Dan. Yeah. So um, anyway, so that was uh, – and yeah, I had some really interesting cases out in uh, in California, but – uh, and I got to meet you, Chad, and spend time with uh, with my cousins, um, uh, uh, you, you and Chad, who uh, who you know are both really dear friends of mine uh, now. And um, but what happened was after six months, I've heard you talk so I, nice to me in forever, Dan. We should uh, call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When we're off the air, I'll tell you what I really say. Now. Um, <laughs> but um, I I ended up moving back to New York because I just missed my entire life uh, more than I loved being out in California. Uh, California was great, but I, I just I gave up so much that I didn't realize I was giving up until I was out there, and then uh, I just really wanted to get back. It was a great learning lesson for me, and then I've been back in the tri-state area, uh, area ever since. Well, Dan, one of the things you said about uh, about the uh, the gangs out here was that uh, it, you said they were vicious, but you were saying that, uh, I, I, if I remember correctly, that they were actually operating some of this out of prisons in, in uh, a prison in Salinas. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, they used to. 
man, they would have these intricate means of getting messages out, like these coded messages. I mean, if these guys, it's the same for the Italian or, uh, mafia in New York. If these guys had used their brain power for legitimate purposes, they would have been very successful. Actually, Judge Weinstein said that to the chin at his sentencing. He's like, he's like if you, you, know, you could have led a Fortune 500 company if you, you put that brain power to good use. And uh, the Mexican mafia, yeah, they were, they were so good at, at, at running things, even from isolation. I remember there was a detective there who was cross-designated federally, and he spent a day just showing me uh, how they did it, and it was, it was just fascinating. <laughs> well, Al, thanks for calling in, man. I appreciate it. Where, where do you live in California? We're in Palo Alto, California. And oh, we, and, I lived in Redwood and, City. So oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we had a great time with Dan. Dan, I'll talk to you later today sometime, but thanks. Well, we're, we'll listen to the rest of this, and thanks That'll for having great. him on. Yeah, thanks, thanks for calling now. in, Al. Al. Day, it's great hearing from you. Love okay. to everyone. Bye. Dan, I got Pamela. She's been waiting very patiently. I think she has a question. She might be mad at me for putting her on hold for so long. But that's what you do, you're good friends, right? <laughs> yeah. Hold on a minute. Let me let me put her back on. Pamela? Hi, Billy. Pamela, are you there? All I wanna say is I watch um shows like Chicago P D and um um Special Victims Unit and a whole lot of other shows like that and his true life experiences match up pretty damn well with um a lot of the TV shows that we now have on air. I don't know if you ever watch that kind of stuff, but um, it's, you know, the witness protection and all of that, um, it matches up. And it's amazing uh, to hear how true it all is, you know? Like we think of it as it's a TV show, but it's really real life. And it wasn't that long ago that we had the Whitey Bulgers shit going on down. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was out of Boston, so it didn't involve me. But, yeah, I was aware of it uh, from the papers. And uh, I, I have to speak very cryptically, but, uh, but I may be involved with, uh, with uh, what could become a very, very major um, uh, TV project uh, along these lines as well. It was kind of rolling forward, and then the, the virus hit. So uh, I don't know where things uh, stand now, but it – it was it was sounding very exciting and and and, and real uh, up until then. So hopefully, uh, when this is behind us, it'll take off again. Yeah, I, I had a woman in my Bible study, um, and she her, she was a family member involved involved in the Whitey Bulger stuff. So she did this whole huge forgiveness thing, and so it, it was really kind of a personal thing, not just for her, but for the entire group that knew her. So that's the big stuff, you know. So it's fascinating, and I'll let you go. I'm just going to buy a Coca-Cola. I came out of the store, and they could have arrested me because I hadn't paid for it yet. <laughs> well, Pamela, thanks for calling. I'm sure you'll meet my friend Dan at some point. I look forward to I'm my like only fun. Massachusetts friend here. Uh, well, I sent messages to Steve Bradley and a few others, so they may listen in afterwards, you know, like okay. later on. All right. Okay. Have a good Thank day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, Dan, some good stories, man. I, I, I was, I was curious. All these people, you know, that you put away. Again, I'm always looking for 
the positive and kind of re- redemption story? Is there people that you put away that after they did some time, they end up kind of redeeming themselves and being a better human being through that going going through a process and going to jail and stuff. Have you heard any of those kind of stories? Yeah, it doesn't work that way in organized <laughs> crime. If, if they do that, they'll get killed, Billy. Those are the rules. If if you well, are reformed, I mean, those are the rules. If you get yeah. reformed and you want to become law-abiding, you have to run damn well for your life because they'll kill you. Um, the the only ones for whom that is true, as I, as I referenced before, uh, yeah. are the ones who left the life and became yeah, witnesses yeah, for us. Yeah. Uh, but no, if you're in organized crime, you 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 go you go out with the gun and the, and the knife, uh, the, the, or or by natural means. Um, uh, but you, you don't have the option of seeing the light. Hmm. And this is in my interpretation. These are just their rules. Yeah, I, I yeah, no, I I get it. Um, yeah, you sign up for it. <laughs> you're in. You know, you don't get to change your mind. Yeah, I was thinking about it. I don't know if we have time to get into it, but the thing that crossed my mind, and I don't even know if we can explain it to it, but um, I was thinking about that when we were in Dominican Republic and that lobster thing happened. Yeah. You're going to tie that to organized crime? This will be interesting. I know. I'm tied to the fact that you are like a prosecutor in the way you approach that whole <laughs> night of getting our money back. Yeah. Oh my God. Do you remember you were like yelling, he's a prosecutor, he's a prosecutor. I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, All right, so let so, me give the quick summary. Yeah, quick, because I think we got like five minutes before they're going to cut us off. So. All right. Uh, so, from best of my memory, so this is our family's went away to make a republic not too long ago. You and I ordered like the lobster dish, and the menu was in Spanish. And it said, I don't know, 20 bucks per lobster. And then we get the lobsters, and they charge us like $90 each. And we're, we're like, what just happened there? And so we, we – and the kids, like, were acting it – was, um, it was late at night, so our wives t- went home with the kids, and you, it was just you and I. We called the waitress over, and she goes, oh, no, no, the $20 is per pound. So I got you four-and-a-half-pound lobster each. We're like, where does it say per pound? And I mean, most I people even... would have just signed the check and like, okay, I, I misunderstood it, but not Dan and not me because I, oh, I yeah. wasn't going to give up. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, the short of it is we, we kind of had it out with them. They ended up, I don't know, crediting us 50% or something like that. And then the really interesting thing is there was a table, remember the table next to us, of a oh, yeah, large yeah, Dominican yeah. family. And they started off with a lot of hostility towards us. They were kind of yep. like making fun of us. Um, but when it was resolved, they, they like waved to us in a kind of sarcastic way. And you and I went over to talk to them, to let them know what really happened. And after our conversation, they said, Oh, you guys were totally in the right. Uh, the, the restaurant really mistreated you. They knew you didn't speak Spanish and knew you couldn't read Spanish. Um, and they were incredibly gracious and we had a great conversation with them. Yeah. I think we were like an hour and a half late or something, putting the kids to bed. So they may have thought, wife thought we'd use that as an excuse to stay over and not have to put the kids to bed. I'm not, I'm not sure. But yeah. and it was interesting when we were at that table as I had my Hug It Out America thing and I gave her my button and I think we gave some hugs. So we kind of you turned did. that around. You had your Hug It Out America thing. You got a good, yeah, you got a good half dozen hugs out of that. Annoying tourist. 
We actually had a point. Oh, we were still the annoying tourists, but you got your hugs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and remember the remember the waitress was completely lying about it. Oh my God! Yeah, she said that my wife had told her that my wife had explained the menu to us. So I called my wife. I was like, "Did you did you have a conversation with the waitress?" She's like, "What? I never talked to her." Yeah. So the waitress made all that up. And she was using the idea that she didn't speak the language and 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 all that. And I mean, yeah. I think majority of the people thought there we were being ridiculous. But my point was to the story is. It doesn't surprise me that Dan has never lost a case because even <laughs> when we argue and he knows he's wrong, he will never admit it. Never, <laughs> ever admit it. But something will happen the next day, just a little sign that will show, you know what, I know I was right. Dan doesn't have to admit it, but the way he's acting today, he's acting a little more humble. Uh, you know, he realized. I tell you once, right. I think my purpose in life was was just to correct you, <laughs> or, or, yeah. or what you think is correct. Uh, oh man, this could go all day, but we got got about. And it does when you and I are on the phone, by the way. What you say? And it does go all day when you and I are on the phone. Usually, it does. It does. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't argue for only like two more minutes. But I, right. I will say tomorrow. I think I told Dan we're having a cool discussion tomorrow. Open it up, no no guests, and we're going to talk about to mask or not to mask, to wear these masks around for the coronavirus or not, in your perspective, because there's a lot of different perspectives on that. So tomorrow we're going to talk about that. Maybe Dan, other people call in, give their thoughts, because and we're all in this unfamiliar time, tough times, and we have that discussion tomorrow. Um, and shine some light on that. Shine some facts and shine some opinions. I'm sure there'll be a lot of opinions from people. That's what calling is is all about. So, um, Dan, man, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. I'm sure you'll yeah, have you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, this, good hearing this, this about your great. side of the story. That's fun. And uh, look forward to proving you wrong in the future as soon as we get ah. off this call. Keep keep searching for that moment, Bill. It'll, it'll come. We got a few decades left. And and let me say uh, love again to cousin Al and and my other cousins out there uh, listening. And Definitely, not listening man. Well. All right. Well, have a good day. Stay, is it nice up there where you are, Dan, today, or is it raining? Yeah, today turned into a beautiful day. So um, yeah, uh, I gotta this get was outside. a great uh, hour of distraction. But uh, yeah, it's it's beautiful out there. Are you wearing wearing a mask or no? Have not yet, but I think we're planning to start doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I wore them. I wore them um, yesterday, and my kids were bitching about it. And I'm, yeah. I'm like, you got to wear them. So I'm trying to get them to, but we'll get in that tomorrow, y'all. Thanks again, and remember, God bless America. Until tomorrow, hug it out, America. Take care, y'all. See you later, All right, Dan. Thanks. All right, talk to you. Bye.